You're listening to Self Propelled, a podcast that explores the process of turning ideas into reality and the secrets behind keeping up momentum once you've started. I'm Dave Cornthwaite, and for 15 years I've experimented my way through a series of personal and social adventures, including Expedition 1000, a self-set mission to complete 25 different non-motorized journeys, each over 1,000 miles. I also founded the Yes Tribe, an optimistic community bonded by the idea of making the most of their time and potential, often by saying yes more. Join me for stories and conversations with self-starters, athletes and entrepreneurs who need nothing more than a good idea to add a little fuel to that pilot light burning deep within us all. My guest today is Nigel Vardy. Some people call him brave, some call him mad, but to face the thin air at high altitude takes a little bit of both. To Nigel, there's nothing like being on a high mountain. Losing limbs to severe frostbite would put off all but the few. But to Nigel, it was the springboard to climb, achieve and conquer. Over the past 30 years, he's climbed across the world, set mountaineering records and spoken to schools and businesses across Europe. He continues on life's adventure, forcing new boundaries and new experiences every day of his life. As Nigel says, I don't want to die in an unused body. Nigel Vardy, thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure, Dave. It's a pleasure. First of all, let's set the scene. Whereabouts are you on this lovely planet of ours and what do your immediate surroundings look like? Well, I, I'm born and bred Derbyshire, so I'm still in the town of Belper, where I've grown up all my life. Um, I'm very fortunate to have green fields at the front of my house. So even uh, in these times, I'm, I'm walking through the fields of my childhood um, and, and thoroughly enjoying that. Nigel, you always we've we've met a few times across the years, uh, and you've always struck me as someone who tries to squeeze the absolute juice out of life. Uh, you 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 turned fifty one uh, recently. You, you're still learning. You're uh, you're retracing your your diaries from uh, your Mount McKinley journey twenty one years ago. Uh, what is it that gets you up in the morning? I think it is a lust for life, Dave. I learned a lot after Alaska and the frostbite and the surgery and the amputations. And I had the best part of probably nine months stuck at home after two or three months in hospital. So I know all about isolation and being stuck. And when you get again the ability to stand and walk and explore again on your own because for a while I was on crutches and somebody had to be with me it opens your eyes again and 30 it was the year 2000 was a huge eye-opener for me and I've remained with that spirit ever since there are certain little things I do every year to remind me of that spirit and then it means that every morning when I get up I bounce out of bed because I keep that spirit and keep that love and keep that drive. I know it drives some people around the bend, but this is what I do. I don't do sitting down very well. I don't do lying around. I don't do bored. But I do active. I do busy. But I also do reflective because, you know, I've had four or five goes at dying. And that's not anything to be proud of, but it teaches you a hell of a lot about how happy we should be to be alive. Which is it that helps you, you know yourself uh, inside out? Is it going through 
extreme trauma or is it being comfortable in your own company in isolation? I think there's a bit of both, Dave. And I, and I wouldn't say it's, it's going through the trauma. Anybody can go through trauma, and I don't say that lightly. You know, if you mm. want to get frostbite, go and sit in a freezer, it'll happen. <laughs> how you come out of it, how you use that experience, how you drive, motivate, learn, encourage yourself defines who you are. And at the moment, you know, a lot of the world is in lockdown. We're having a, a really tough time. And we've got to hunker down in the tough times. I might not have wanted to be stuck on a bed for three months, uh, being spoon-fed by other people, and unable to actually do what I wanted to do as, other than the frostbite, a perfectly fit, healthy 30-year-old. But I didn't have a choice. The choice was taken away from me. The control was taken away from me. In this position now, control and choice has been taken away from people again. Some people don't like that. Some people rebel. Um, I've just found that it's a decision I have no outcome in. I can't change their decision. So what I need to do is work within the parameters that I've got and make the very best of that. Now, that doesn't mean I don't feel lonely as well, because by God, I have just lately. That doesn't mean I've not sat and cried at night either, because I have. But I get up every day knowing today is a new day. Today we do something different. Today we make life a little better. Then when the bad times come, we have to face them and move on until, of course, we see some light at the end of this tunnel. Hmm. Yeah. Holding out until that light uh, is either hard or easy. It it totally depends on... Is is it mindset or experience? Which one of those is is proving to be stronger for you right now? Mindset for me and... I've noticed already the change in people over the last few weeks. And I don't just mean uh, the change in the fact that there's more and more people walking up and down the road outside my house because there's plenty of fields and they don't know where the footpaths are. (laughs) Um, But it's also people are having to get used to a situation that they, they might not like and they might not know, but they're having to get used to it. But only yesterday where I am in Derbyshire, it rained. And all of a sudden I noticed that nobody came out because nothing's changed in that way. It's wet and it's cold. I'm not going out the house. The The three weeks we had of lovely sunny weather, everybody's out. So some things don't change. <laughs> but, it's, but it is a mindset thing of I cannot change the situation. And if you can get in your own mind that it's out of your control, stop worrying. Hmm. I'll give you an example. I was coming down to London, it's a few years back now, to do an event, and the train had an issue at Leicester. Signalling problem, train stops. There is pandemonium on this train with people going to business meetings in London. I can't cope, I can't cope. The poor staff are having 10 people at once arguing with them. And I sat there and I thought, what can I actually change? (laughs) Nothing. Yes, I can ring the client and say, guys, we're stuck in Leicester. I'll be with you as quick as I can. I am sorry, but, you know, it's out of our control and I'll be with you as quick as I can. But running around screaming and shouting and complaining or throwing your teddy out the pram, whatever you want to call it, will not change the situation. If anything, it will make it worse. 
Well, worrying is is extra emotion, extra energy. And you're so right. What can I actually change? What a great question for people to be able to ask themselves Um, at all times of hardship, I think, uh, whether that's perceived or real. Nigel, I always like to go into these podcasts and uh, assuming that people who are listening don't know who the guest is. And you, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned, you've mentioned Frostbite uh, nice and early. Take me back 21 years ago to April 1999. Well, I just turned 30 and two friends and myself had got together a few months before with this idea of climbing what's now called Denali over in Alaska. It was called McKinley at the time. It's quite a legendary mountain in mountaineering circles because of its weather and its epics and everything else that comes with it. And we flew out on the 30th of April and went to Alaska, attempted to climb on something called the West Rib, which is a reasonably technical route on the mountain. And like all trips, Dave, it was a go and do, achieve what you can, come home safe and plan the next one. And we went over and we achieved what we could and very close to the summit, um, we were caught in a really quite desperate mountain storm. And the three of us were what we call benighted. We had to spend a night very close to the top of the mountain at 6,000 metres odd in a horrific blizzard. We were told later on the temperatures dropped to approximately minus 60 centigrade. And we basically bashed a snow hole out the floor and lived underground in the ice overnight, uh, trying basically to stay alive until the next day when the storm subdued we were in a position to try and get back to our camp sadly one of the guys steve as the storm broke was hypothermic overnight uh, thankfully he made a recovery we sat hugging him all night the next morning i was hypothermic and frostbite had taken its hold of me we tried to get down to camp it didn't happen because of the condition of my hands and feet and also i was partially blinded Steve tried to go for help the other guy Anthony and myself were rescued by helicopter and the pilot actually set an altitude record for the area of getting us off Uh, and we'd assumed that helicopter was sent by Steve it wasn't Steve had taken an enormous fall and broken both of his legs and spent another night out on the ice quite convinced he was going to die thankfully he didn't because I only saw him about six weeks ago and Anthony and myself uh, were flown to hospital. Steve came in the day after. And we started a new journey in our lives. You know, we were roughly tufty mountaineers at the time, physically and emotionally as tough as it gets, top of our game, and within 24 hours, bang. In a bed, told not to get up, sleeping with your arms in the air like you're being crucified, spoon-fed, the works, and no definite outcome. Now, I've been an engineer for 30-odd years, and I work in binaries, ones and noughts, yes or no, on and off. And when people give you answers of, we don't know, and they genuinely don't know, and I think that's an issue we're having with with coronavirus now, people want answers, and people can't give them in black and white, you know, left and right, one and two. We didn't know what our outcome was, and that was absolutely destroying, because we didn't know if we're going to lose body parts. I did. I lost all my toes, both my heels, all my fingertips, my nose and the left hand cheek of my face. All to frostbite, all amputated. It's not the end of the world. Might sound it, 
but for the last 20 years since that accident, 21 years, I've been climbing and travelling across the world quite a lot and done some, people might think, particularly ridiculous things, other people not, um, and I still intend on doing it. You know, I am not stopping until my legs drop off or my arms drop off or I can't physically get out of a chair anymore. Um, Bonington's still doing bits of 83, so as far as I'm concerned, that's good enough. Um, there's still a good 30 years in me yet, I hope. During that recovery period, how how close were you in proximity to to the other guys you were you were climbing with and did you help each other through through that immediate period after after the mountain initially um things changed a little bit initially steve was in the next room to myself we're in america we're in alaska so it's individual you know rooms in a hospital but steve was only you know 20 feet away on the other side of a wall i didn't see him for five or six days because neither of us could get out of bed and the only time I did see him, one morning or every morning, I was taken out of the bed into a specialist chair and taken for a bath in almost like a miniature swimming pool uh, to work on the wounds. And as they were taking me out, five, fifth or sixth day, I think now, Steve came out at the same time. And that was the first time I saw him and Steve was a lot more beaten up than I was. Hmm. But to see that smiling face, and I'll give him his due, Steve's been through a lot more in the way of amputations than me. He's always got a smile on his face. Now, Anthony wasn't as badly injured as us, so he could actually move between the two rooms. He was allowed to walk after a day or so, and he could come to visit, but Steve and I actually couldn't physically move to see each other. Now, we flew to the UK two weeks later, and Anthony could go home, and he was allowed to be an outpatient at his local hospital. Steve and myself were sent to the same hospital in Nottingham into a burns unit, and we were about six doors apart there, and again, it may have well been 600 miles. But over time, as staff pushed us around and did what we did and whatever, you know, we'd see each other or they'd put us into the same room and we'd catch up for a while. Um, but you're reliant on other people for everything there, Dave. Every mo- movement you make hmm. is at somebody else's say. That's the difficult thing. You lose the freedom of movement. Hmm. I mean, I'm... I'm trying to imagine as you're speaking uh, that that process that that leads someone to to want to climb above six thousand meters. I think for many people listening, it's it's probably something that will never happen in their lifetime. What what is it that that makes you want to go that high? Is it is it an excitement, a thrill that you found earlier in your life that just kept on kept on growing, and Ultimately, what leads you to to make the choice to go up there uh, and then stick out the conditions that you had to? Well, I started, you know, I was a very outdoor child. My family background's in farming and agriculture and many other things. So I spent a lot of my childhood in the great outdoors. And the school I went to, the comprehensive school, Belper High School, as it used to be called, had an outdoor pursuits curriculum. We actually did it in the school day. And part of that was rock climbing and caving and canoeing and all kinds of things. In in the 80s, teachers took you. There was no idea of having a guide. It was just coming some old kit. We're going rock climbing. And it scared the living backside out of me because I have an absolutely (laughs) immense fear of heights. And 
I thought that was it. And I went off and got a job in the electricity industry when I was 16 and I'm still there. But I met some folk who said, you like hill walking and I'm really maintained by hill walking. Do you fancy coming doing some winter mountaineering in Scotland? And of course, you know this well. I said that very dangerous little word, didn't I? Yes. <laughs> and away we went. And that then was a start. It was like a little spring onto a bigger spring onto a bigger spring. And I started doing higher peaks and higher peaks. And then I went to South America and did some climbing in the Andes. And six and a half thousand metres out there, you know, it sounds horrific. It is actually achievable. Um, you know, the peaks are well organised. People know what's going on. It, it, it sounds the end of the world. It's not. And that gave me the impetus to say, well, where do I take this? And only a few months after I'd got back from Bolivia, I bumped into Anthony, who Anthony and I had both been on Operation Rally in the early 90s, or Rally International as it is. And we knew each other. And he just said, look, we went to a dinner party one night. There's this idea of going to McKinley, are you fixed? And of course, I said yes again. Met Steve and away we went. And it, as long as you're well prepared, as long as you understand the risks, like any sport, you know, canoeing, like caving, Anything comes with a risk, a perceptible risk. Uh, you have to accept that. And I, I was happy to accept it because we'd done everything we could to make it the best trip out. And all right, in this case, it got us. But there is nothing like being high in the mountains to me, Dave. Now, you don't have to be at 6,000 metres. You can be at 2,000 metres. Mm. And you can have some absolutely inspiring positions, views, people, surroundings, that are barely describable. Hmm. I've skied in Greenland at sea level, on ice. It's unbelievable. <laughs> but the, the breath thing at altitude is the thing. You know, you're fighting to speak, you're fighting to breathe. It's almost as if you're trying to physically and emotionally challenge yourself to see how far you can go and see what your body will allow you to do. You know, I've had a crack at 7,000 metres since my accident, and as it happened, it didn't work. But I came back understanding it just wasn't for me. There's no need for me to try, well, I'm going to climb Everest and put oxygen on and go. No. Hmm. Six, six and a half is where my body feels that's far enough. That's fine with me, Dave. Is it more of a feeling about being up there or out there as opposed to to the figure, the metres above sea level? I think so, because as I say, I've, I've been to Greenland on a number of occasions and literally been at sea level and there's nobody there. Hmm. The air is fresh. The views are spectacular in the, in the least. You're in a very remote environment. You're working, hopefully, with people that you know and like and love and the bigger challenge is actually the world around you and everything takes effort. And I don't mind that because I think if we put effort in, we get reward out. Everything takes organisation. It takes routine. It takes time. It takes effort. And I don't believe the world should be too easy because if it's too easy, we lose the initiative and we lose the drive and we lose what keeps us going. You know, the number of people I've seen just lately in the breakout, you know, the, the virus, and it's as if their lives are drifting because they've got nothing to do. They don't have hobbies or time. They can spend doing things at the minute. And you can see them drifting into, I'm sat in the garden drinking beer. That's fine if that's what you want to do. 
but don't let your life drift keep the discipline and that's what you need on a mountain is discipline is that another part got... of... sorry nigel oh, no absolutely is is this is this an, uh, an another uh, partial partial aspect to to the drive behind climbing these mountains to the adventures that you take on you know you t- you say i don't want to die in an unused body but does that also go to unused mind as well are you are you trying to ensure that life doesn't get easy so you don't have that helplessness that comes with that feeling to that degree dave some of it yes i mean don't get me wrong we all have a day off now and again <laughs> but you know you don't learn by not putting effort in your memory won't fill itself you know by just pouring a, a jug of energy into your ear you've got to go and get life and you've got to go and grab it by the throat sometimes and you've got to go and experience it now that doesn't mean i'm kind of an adrenaline junkie that people have accused me of in the past anything like that but you've got to be disciplined as well you know i still get up in the morning at the same time every day regardless of what's going on outside because i need that regularity and have my breakfast and have my shower and do my bits and start my work i mean i work shifts in the electricity industry so that does mess you around a little bit but i don't lie around doing nothing because i need the discipline to keep my mind active to keep my body active i do have to do a lot of personal work on my injuries as well now so i can't be in a position to say it doesn't matter because it does otherwise my skin grafts even 21 years on will suffer and that maintains that discipline of you know it's a bit like brushing your teeth every morning and every night don't lose it I put decent clothes on in the day. I won't slum around in my pyjamas, even though I've got nothing to do, perhaps. I'll still dress because it keeps me sharp, Dave. And that, to me, is everything. Hmm. Nigel, let's let's talk about risk. There's 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 obviously a sliding scale of risk when you decide to, to take on a, a, a big adventure of sorts. And back in April 99, what was it like those, those few hours before you you started up McKinley at the time was obviously there's a you you can mitigate the risk to a degree you know great preparation experience uh ensure your climbing partners are are people you can trust and and have have correct skills themselves was was there an element of doubt over the weather forecast what what was it like before you you made your way up no the Weather moves a lot on mountains. That's just part of the game. Hmm. And conditions change. There's avalanches and Lord knows what else. But if we don't search and we don't challenge and we don't accept risks in our life, then I'm going to ask what we're actually doing on this planet. Hmm. Because since the first days of fight and flight, uh, hunter-gathering and whatever, we've had to accept some kind of risk. Whether that is there's a big bad bear going to chase us down if we don't run fast enough or whatever. So when we went on the mountain initially, and bear in mind we're on there 17, 18 days, some days were beautifully sunny. In fact, so hot, you know, at four or 5,000 metres, you can't believe how warm it gets some days. But the nights are bitterly cold. Hmm. Other days it was grey and overcast and particularly horrible. But that's what mountaineering is. You're there for such a long time period that the weather will change. It was the last day that caught us 
when a storm came in and it just smashed onto the top of the summit and we were in it. But we'd seen storms in the days before just because, welcome to the mountains. It's a bit like, you know, here today in Derbyshire, it's quite cool, it's been damp. You know, a week ago, it was bright and sunny. Hmm. You can pick your season. We always do that. You know, I wouldn't go to Greenland in the winter. I know people that do. <laughs> um, and I know ski patrols that go in the winter. But I'd like to go in the summer when it's probably going to be all right. Um, similarly, you wouldn't go to certain places in the monsoon or in, ty- or in um, hurricane season. Hmm. Because you just know it's perfectly warm and safe, but it's blowing, you know, 95 miles an hour and we're all going to fly. <laughs> so, you know, you have to pick your time. And we had. You've got to pick your skills. And we had. Um, wrong place, wrong time, Dave. Hmm. What kind of tech did you carry at the time? Obviously, you know, this, this is 1999, so pre-mobile internet. Uh, did, did you have a sat phone? Was there a way that you could, you could uh, you know, keep updated on the outside world, on weather forecasts, et cetera, et cetera? There was, yes. When you book in at the ranger station, uh, we came in from the small town of Talkeetna, which is just south of the mountain. The rangers fill you in with conditions that they've seen, all the information they've got, and you're basically given a handheld radio. And that's wrapped up in what I would have called a carry mat years ago, a sleeping mat, just a bit of sleeping mat taped up. The radio goes inside. You keep the batteries separate. You know, it's ordinary AA cells. It wasn't as if it was a specialist rechargeable battery. Hmm. And you've got to keep those separate because if they go cold, they don't work. And... What we did is, all the ask is every couple of three days, just call into base camp, say hello, hmm. um, tell them who you are, uh, give them an update on conditions or how the team is or whatever you've got, uh, provided you can get radio coverage. And radio coverage was very uh, patchy. But we did call in every so often and just say hello. And obviously, you know, it shows them what we're doing. When the actual storm hit... I used the radio to get a message out to base camp that obviously we're in dire trouble. And it wasn't until a lot later, Dave, it never dawned on me this, that the batteries I had to keep separate to the radio in one of the pockets in the side of my salopettes. And there are eight batteries. Now, my hands were bitter at this point. So I had to get all eight batteries in by head torch in a storm, <laughs> the right way up, without dropping one. Close the cover, pull the, it's a whip aerial, you pull it out, an extensible aerial, you stick your head out into a storm, and then you press the button and cry for help. And it wasn't until recently I thought, if I dropped one of those batteries and couldn't have find it, I wouldn't be here now. Hmm. It's absolute down to all the cells in, the radio working, the message getting out, and and I was still shooting 35mm slide and print because digital cameras weren't on the market. (laughs) As you say, sat phones were very new and there was certainly nothing else at the time at all. Hmm. You say you've uh, you've had a go at, at death four or five times and you're talking about the, the intricacy of getting these batteries in in these conditions. Is there is there something that focuses your mind at these times geared up to survival, which isn't necessarily let's get the batteries into the, into the sat phone? <laughs> How do you how do you feel? How do, how does how do your focuses change in these moments? I, I slow down. I almost go into a slow motion. If you watch a Hollywood movie and you know they, they slow it all down in certain sequences, it does feel a little bit like that. 
Um, I do get very serious when a situation like this happens, but also people say I relax more. Sounds a bit bizarre. I was climbing in, just an example, I was climbing in Brazil some years ago and we're a bit late on the peak. If anybody knows Rio de Janeiro, I'm climbing on the um, Sugarloaf where the cable car very famously goes over the bay. And we were late getting there and late up the hill and having a nightmare and we're running out of light and we've got to get off the top of this peak. And the two climbing partners I was with were panicking and going, oh, we're going to run out, we're going to run out. We haven't got the time, it's not going to work. And they said to me, you became the most relaxed, quietly spoken, but very direct person I've ever met. Hmm. And it was because panicking won't help, screaming and shouting won't help, but just putting your hand here, putting your foot there, push yourself into that corner, get over the top, because we're only a few feet below the summit, we'll all be on the top and we can all go down and I'll buy the beers. How does that sound? And, we, and it just happened. And I don't see this till afterwards. But people have said this to me on more than one occasion. You actually relax, Nigel, when the chips hit the deck. Panic kills, right? Yeah. Panic, running around. You know, we, we all say the phrase of running around like a headless chicken. Who wants to be a headless chicken? <laughs> Who wants to... Scream, I can't, can't... I mean, don't get me wrong, people are struggling at the moment. People are having terrible, terrible times. People are losing family members. You know, it, th this, is, this is no joke. But screaming, shouting, bouncing around is not going to change the situation if only burning mental energy that you need to survive. Now, that doesn't mean also shut the doors in deny everything and just hope you come out the other end of it because that will boil your insides out. We do need to speak about what it's about. We do need to understand each other. We do need to forgive each other, but we do need to embrace each other as well. And I know physically we can't do that at the moment, but understand love, care, attention, time, these things that are so free. Hmm. And this is the great thing. It costs nothing. And there's bountiful amounts of it. Please use it up. Accept it. Take it. Listen to your friends. Talk to people. Help people. And that will be worth more. I, I'm already looking at things now. This is going to be worth more to me than anything you can buy and anything you can create because this is human interaction, and without that, we are nothing. We're hmm. absolutely nothing. Human interaction, of course, is important, but you clearly revel in in being out in the wild, uh, in 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 isolation. How have the adventures since since McKinley shaped up for you? Uh, how how easy was it after? recuperating for those those nine plus months um in in 1999 into 2000 you know you've got you've got a new physical shape you've got you've got new challenges to overcome uh moving isn't as simple as it once was what led you to to get back to the mountains very early on in the um, treatment of my wounds and I was still of a point of we didn't really know what was going to go on 
<clears throat> I was lying in my bed in Anchorage one night and it was a particularly dusky evening and a gentleman walked through the door and he was a consultant and he looked like Father Christmas <laughs> and he'd served in the Korean War with the American Army and in Korea a, a great many service personnel suffered frostbite and nobody understood it. <clears throat> and he did a lot of the original research and he looked at me and we had a, a quiet conversation and he said, Mr Vardy, you will walk again. You will be in the mountains again. Mm. I have no doubt of that. And at the time, you don't sort of understand really what they're saying. And I tell you what, those words sat with me and still sit with me now. I, as soon as I could use my hands, was asking friends and my family, I've got some other climbing ropes at home. I've got some climbing gear at home. Can you bring it in? I want to see if I can learn how to tie knots again. Now, this put the fear of God in my family, and it still does to a degree. Um, because I wanted to learn, you know, they've amputated all my finger ends. Can I still tie knots? Can I still use climbing gear? Can I put a harness on? I had no idea. And I'd got to learn this from day one again like I was an infant. And... I was determined then, you know, they've cut all my toes off. I'm walking a little bit, but I can't do much. And I'm badgering the staff saying, when can I go on my bike again? I've got a turbo trainer. We'll put the bike on. When can I do it? When can I do it? When? Of course, they're saying, Mr. Varney, slow down. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> and in the end, I was allowed to do 10 minutes a day on the turbo or something like that. <clears throat> and I still got this initiative of, I want to climb. And I'll be frankly honest with you, Dave, it's probably what saved me. Because only a few weeks before this, I was in a position where basically I'd have taken my own life if I had the opportunity to do so. Hmm. And I don't say that lightly. I would have done it. And the only thing that got me out of that was the fact that I gained the initiative to say, Nigel, you can't do this. This can't happen. You have to get back on the world, mate. And by starting to walk and starting to get back into that idea of, yes, I can tie a knot. Yeah, I can use rock knots and friends. Okay, this is going to work. I then went back to rock climbing with some good friends, then to winter mountaineering in Scotland with good friends. And I served what I call the apprenticeship again. You know, when you're younger, you learn how to ride a bike and you move up the line or you learn how to climb or canoe or cave and you learn your skills over time. I had to start again at 30. And I went through all those skills again, working out how, you know, stumpy hands hold on to rock, how toeless feet can wear boots, how I can hang out and put a piece of gear in. And I had to learn that from scratch. And then I took the decision to keep going uphill. So I went from Scotland to the Alps and I went from the Alps to the Himalayas. There was no way I was going to jump overnight. There was no way I could have done it, Dave. Hmm. And I went back to 6,000 metres. I climbed a peak called Island Peak in the Himalayas in 2002. And from there, it was just, right, what's next? I don't do bucket lists. I don't write I must do's. I just see what the world gives me. And the world gave me Baffin Island. So I went to Baffin Island <laughs> and ski toured on Baffin Island in 2003. And just went continuously on from that point. You mentioned earlier you're you're still having to spend plenty of time uh, looking after your fingers and toes. Can you can you give us a little bit more more depth into that? How how much mm. time does it take each day, each week? What do you? Have uh, to... It's not a lot every day. Perhaps twenty minutes a day. Um, even though my 
skin drafts are old, a lot of them are from material all over places like my hips and, and uh, one or two from my groin actually. And they basically super glue them on. So the skin's not really happy where it is. It works and it does a job. But what you tend to find is it splits. It goes very dry and it cracks very, very easily. Hmm. Particularly in high quality, uh, high quantities of ultraviolet light or in high abrasion situations. So I have to sit and inspect them every day. I put a very, very specific cream on um, all my feet and my hands morning and evening and possibly in the day as well and believe me i know if i haven't done it and then every four weeks i actually have podiatry care at a local clinic um, because the skin grafts don't know when to stop growing hmm. so actually they try to turn into halfway between skin and a nail and the only way they can be treated is they actually shave them off with a scalpel and actually shave the dead skin away every four weeks and that will be happening for the rest of my life at the moment that's a bit difficult because the clinics are closed and we're having to consider how that's working but i'm having to help there mm. um but that's going to happen forever dave i also have to consider i've got some grafts on my face i've got a new nose and a big scar on my left cheek i have to be very very careful of too much ultraviolet on those as well so very often thick sun cream and a big brim hat mm. just to keep that protected as well dave do you ever remember what it was like before you you had these injuries to deal with um obviously you've you know it's been 21 years now uh, and it's like it or not it's it's part of your life it's part of your regime but do you do you think perhaps how you just took full health for granted beforehand do you ever do you ever wonder about that we all take full health for granted i think i think mm. it's just the norm and we go along in our lives i've seen you know i see a lot of people i have to go to hospital a lot for varying treatments now and again and and i see so many people and they're just wandering on completely oblivious to the fact that there's something wrong with them and they think it's somebody else's fault or somebody else's problem and that's because i think they assume we all should have excellent health and believe me i did um i'm not bad now but before the accident, you know, I was right as rain. Uh, and we just accept it because it's the norm. You know, we didn't have arthritis or a breathing issue or any kind of um, palsy or whatever. It, it was just to me, you get up, you do what you do. I used to walk 40 miles a day, cycle 60 miles a day. And it was the norm. I was fit. And yes, occasionally the next morning you'd be a bit stiff. But it was just, you know, I was in my 20s. And you just got up and dealt with it, and you just did. And it wasn't till afterwards that I had to realise your body does need self-care, and most of us are reasonably bad at that. You know, we'll eat rubbish and we'll drink rubbish, <laughs> and we'll just think it's not a problem. And then 30 years later on, you think, ah, well, I should have learnt there. But, of course, you never listen to your elders when you're 18. How many of us listen to people, our parents, who say, now don't do that, it'll catch up with you. Yeah, 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 of course it will. And then when you get to that age, you realise that it does. <laughs> you know, how many people say, don't don't keep going down on your knees, it'll knacker your knees when you get older, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, now when I kneel down, I have knee pads on when I work, or a kneeler, because at 51, my knees have had a hell of a beating. Hmm. They're not stopping yet. 
but I can hear him creaking and cracking in the morning sometimes. <laughs> What's your ideal camping setup, Nigel? I mean, uh, you won't mind me saying you've got a few years on me, but I, I, you know, I've just turned forty, and I, I really struggle now with a uh, with your average therma rest. Do you do you have any uh, any luxuries that you you take just to make life a bit more comfortable? Um. It depends on the trip, Dave. I've done an awful lot of jungle work as well, and there's nothing like sleeping in a hammock. Oh, yeah. And obviously, you know, you've got to be careful about insects and about weather. But I've actually got a hammock in my house, (laughs) and I've got a garden room with lots of glass. And when the weather's whatever it's doing, I can actually just put the hammock across the back of my dining table and get in the hammock. (laughs) And there is nothing like hammocks. It's just... But when I'm actually, you know, mountaineering, particularly if we're on a very cold climate, we actually have really, really thick uh, mats now. Um, You know, not just a normal... I mean, we used to go years ago with a thin foam thing, you know, less than a centimetre, and that was the standard. Carry more mats, we used to call them, or carry mats. Um, Everything's very different now, but I still sleep on a normal thermarest. I still like a really good sleeping bag, though, but I always have my head out because I like to breathe fresh air. And uh, usually a dram of whiskey is a definite wherever I'm camping. (laughs) Um, But I do like to be in the environment. And when I say that, I've camped in parts of Africa where it still is quite old-fashioned, almost colonial at times. So if you've got a team of guys with you, they want to do everything for you, and they want to do this, they want to do that. And and sometimes I'm thinking, guys, no, I'll, I'll muck in with you. I want to help. I want to be part of the team. Come on. Hmm. When you're on a mountain, you're on your own. And you've got weight issues. You can't carry the luxuries half the time. You might sneak a bar of chocolate in now and again and a bottle of whiskey at the bottom of the back. But, you know, you can't carry uh, loads of gear. And I sometimes think, Dave, I see this a lot on, on the web, People say they're going camping. And I think, why have you got a car full of kit? (laughs) I used to fish as a boy. And I used to have to carry my fishing kit. And now I see people pulling up in a transit with a box trailer on. Why? (laughs) And I think we've got in a commercial world where we'll see a blog, we'll look at somebody camping and go, I've got to have one of them. Hmm. And I go, no, I don't even wear a watch. I'll use the same mug. I've been using the same damn thermal mug for 20-something years. (laughs) I don't feel the need to be commercial in that respect. I don't feel the need to push how much gear I've got when actually I've got to carry it, so why wouldn't I take what works, what Mm -hmm. works for me, what does the job, what I know is reliable, and what gets me up next morning. And after that, why I get the sense you you take some great pleasure from being able to travel light and remain happy. Is that the case? If I can, Dave, yes. Um, I have to carry more medical kit now because of my injuries, which is a bit of a pain if I'm on a long trip. But otherwise, as light as I can go, fairly, and just engage with the world and engage with the people you're with as well. Just because you're on a trip overseas or, or in Britain or wherever, you know, to me, everybody's an equal. I don't care who you are, where you're from, what your background is, sex, religion, race, or whatever. We're all equals. We all work together. We all enjoy the experience. We all learn from each other and we all smile. Hmm. 
You know, and I live on my own. I, I do get lonely, you know, no two ways about it. So sometimes when I travel, I do travel on my own. But now the older I've got, the more I want to travel with other people because it's being with the other people, the experience, the understanding, the learning, the conversations around the campfire, whatever it happens to be. That, to me, is vital. You also love the cold. How does going into into a cold climate affect affect your 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 cheek your nose your 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 toes and your fingers now do you do you feel the cold differently when you've had frostbite you do dave yes my hands go an awful ashen gray now if they get really cold and i mean i'm very fortunate that a a local company cuts gloves to fit for me and mittens to fit for me Hmm. But they are more prone to cold. And if they get cold now, I have a heck of a time getting them back. Right. Feet aren't as bad because they're in big boots most of the time. Um, But I've got to get the other issue, which is if you've got big boots and socks on, they can sweat. And that can cause the the opposite issue that uh, we call it going boggy on your skin grafts. They macerate, they go wet. And again, that's a big issue. Uh, I got frost nip on my nose a couple of years ago skiing. Uh, and my nose is particularly more prone now to the cold. And very often with people, I'll look at them and say, just count for me and I'll press my nose. We'll count how many seconds it takes for the blood to come back. And I've had up to eight seconds before and that's I'm going indoors. You know, any more, anything really more than two seconds and you're getting worried. Mm. Um, and I was on a ski trip with some, uh, some of my family in, in Alberta a couple of years ago and it was bitter. And with all face mask galore and everything else, even the Canadians were complaining. Trust me, that's cold. (laughs) And so I said, look, guys, I'm going inside. And actually, I've got a very, very slight touch of frost nip on the end of my nose um, because the blood supply is very different now. And I just have to recognise that, Dave. I know, and, and I've got to be plainly honest with myself and other people. Some days you've just got to say, there are no heroes here. Guys, I'm really struggling. Will somebody please help me? Hmm. And if I'm on a trip overseas or anywhere in the, in the UK even, and I'm with other people I might not know so well or, or whatever, um, sometimes I'll actually sit down with one and two and say, do you know if you see this in my face or in my hands, will you please tell me, don't be frightened. Hmm. Because if I can't feel it, somebody else has got to tell me. I know what to do, but I don't want it to get too far down the road before we do it. Hmm. And you have to be bluntly honest with people around you and bluntly honest with yourself. Nigel, your experience back in 1999 has has clearly had a, a massive impact on on your life since. Have you have you ever been back? Have you have you gone back to Denali? No. It's a, it's an interesting question, Dave, because we actually had a few conversations last year and the year before about going back this year. And it was with uh a fellow climber who had a big uh, epic on, on Denali 40 years ago. So it would have been his 40th and my 21st. And we were actually going to do a, a film and a, um, a bit of a trip round the mountain uh, to, you know, recount our experiences. As it happened, that didn't come off. And all right, now it couldn't have done anyway. I don't know as I'd want to go and climb on the mountain again. I'd certainly go back and look at it, fly over it and sort of swear at it a bit, you know. Um, But I wouldn't be in a position really, because of my injuries now, to return. 
unless it was a hugely supported expedition and Dave that's really not me mm. to be honest sometimes you need to let sleeping dogs lie and I wonder if that's not what I ought to really do with it hmm no that's that seems fair enough but all of this said you're you're right now towards the the end of April 2020 you're you're starting to recount your diaries where where did that idea come from why why 20 the 21st anniversary when we got to 10 years in, I was asked to do some lectures at some quite big events, and it was quite a reflective piece. 10 years had passed and whatever else. And then with the idea of going back on the 21st anniversary, as I say, that didn't happen. It wasn't then really till COVID hit. And I thought, Nigel, it's 21 years. Why don't you do something positive with it? Why don't you? I mean, you know, you've seen me speak, Dave. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be the most dire, awful, terrible time in your life, and yet there is always comedy. <laughs> and there is always a good side. Even in the face of horror, death, and adversity, we can all have a good laugh. Usually at my expense, and I don't care. <laughs> so I thought, can I do something positive with this? How do I do this? And, and it literally came out of a number of conversations with people. And so I decided, right, let's get the diaries out. I'm, I'm a bit OCD, so I've got everything actually indexed. Got the diary out. I'd been working on the slides anyway, and many other slides were able to shoot 35mm. So I got the original pictures back out and thought, I haven't seen some of these in 20 years. So why don't we do this? And so what I'm doing, as of the 30th of April, is... Every day, I will do day one of the diary, day two, day three, day four, and I will take people through that climb with me. Me making a short video, so anybody can watch it as and when it fits them. It's different to everything else that's going on in the world of terrible figures and numbers and, and, and what's going on. People sick to death of, of listening about you know, viruses. Let's bring something positive Yes, I know at the very end of it, it nearly killed me, but I'm still here, still doing it. We'll keep doing it. We've got to provide inspiration and help. And and if that's, you know, at a bit of expense of my comedy, that's fine. If that's an expense at some of my time, that's fine. And showing some pictures that really, even I'm quite embarrassed to look at how young I once was, that's fine. <laughs> let's Let's share. I'm a big sharer. I don't believe in keeping things to myself, as in, I want it and you can't have it. And if I can make some people laugh, inspire one person, I don't care what, Dave, the effort is worth it. Hmm. I totally... That is why I'm doing it. That oh. is why I'm doing it. And it's going to put me, you know, I'm already having roller coaster emotions over this. I had a cry this morning. And yet, I feel the need, it has to be done. And there's only one person can do it. And that's me. Hmm. I totally agree. I know you, you you talk about the McKinley expedition a lot. You know, it's 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 part of your your livelihood. It's part of your life. How have you? But getting really in deep to these memories, you know, looking looking back at your diaries and photos that perhaps you don't see on a regular basis because you know if you if you go going on the speaking circuit you you tend to stick to the same themes have you been surprised at any of the the memories the emotions that you feel looking back at these these hidden hidden memories certainly with some of the pictures i 
as you say, Dave, you know, I speak about it and you get, you get used to a picture set. You get used to, uh, when I first started doing it, here's 25 slides. Later on, of course, we had uh, digital means. And you get used to those pictures and you forget the bits in between. And also, because I've worked with the press and the media quite a lot over the years, the story gets skewed, hmm. particularly by certain press outlets. And people be believe that's the truth. And then when you look back and you go, no, it isn't. And I've been looking at some pictures only this morning, realising, good grief, I used to have really brown hair, didn't I? <laughs> and all my fingers look horrendously long to me now. <laughs> I forgot about, oh, there was some really nasty weather that day. I'd completely forgotten about it. I knew roughly where we were camping once on this horrific ice fall. And I've seen the pictures again this morning for the first time in 20 years thinking, that really was a horrific night and I'd forgotten how bad and it was just dire. Hmm. And purposely though, what I haven't done is read the diary. I'm only reading the diary a day in advance because I don't want to be hmm. too scripted. I want it to affect me as well because then it's authentic. I'm not writing a script for this. I'm literally trying to read what somebody wrote 21 years ago by head torch in minus 30 in a sleeping bag in the dark with a pen. <laughs> are you, are you, there's no, you know, there's no digital um, means in those days. Whatever you scrawled is what I've got. Hmm. So I do read it the day before and pick a few things out and I'll pick some, uh, highlight some passages I want to speak about and then put some pictures into that. And it brings me along with the emotional roller coaster as well. You've spoken before, Dave, and anybody listening to this will know that if you're going to present to people, unless it's a play with a script, I would rather work from the heart. Mm -hmm. And I would always want to speak from the soul, not from a sheet of paper in front of me. Hmm. And by knowing what I want to say, but working out how I'm going to say it as I go, actually for me works. And it allows me to bring out the emotion within me of those days, of how cold it was, what it was like having to get up at three o'clock in the morning to go to the toilet in minus 25. Um, you know, how to get a stove fired up at five o'clock in the morning because it takes an hour to boil a litre of water. All these bizarre little bits that you miss because you're telling the story, they're coming back to me in, in huge quantities at the moment. It's, it's quite a ride really is quite a ride for me but i am enjoying the ride i bet on all fronts can you still read the old handwriting in some of it <laughs> i sometimes have to go back a bit and go what was i trying to say and then one word will come to you but literally if you've done it yourself you know it's bitterly cold or it's raining or it's dark or wherever and you've got five minutes to scribble your diary down because something's happening you write very fast and very badly or i did <laughs> and the pen's running out or whatever it happens to be you know because the biro's freezing because mm. the ink's freezing all these sorts of things it's uh it's why i still handwrite now dave because mm. there's emotion in handwriting i can't get emotional about an email it's too blank <laughs> too true nigel i guess uh it's it's probably a, a good point to to finish on if people have been listening for the last uh 50 55 minutes and they're thinking oh i really want to follow these diaries but also find out uh more about nigel's adventures um before and after alaska as well 
they can do so on, on your website, which is mrfrostbite.com. And you're also on Facebook as Nigel Vardy.mrfrostbite. Uh, but I'd like to preserve the final word for you just to just to give a nice little summary of, of, of these these diary rereads. I'm literally shooting a talking head about four or five minutes once a day recounting the actual day to the day 21 years after it happened starting April the 30th right up till the middle of May until my diary runs out. I really don't know what to do at that point. I have some ideas and I will actually be asking the audience what they would like me to do and they will guide me at that point. I'm literally sitting in my house in a chair just speaking into the camera reading from the diary with every ounce of soul I've got left trying to tell you what it was like to be there on the mountain and all the uncertainty that came with that in about four to five minutes a day. Amazing. It'll be on YouTube and Facebook. Again, mrfrostbite.com. Nigel, thanks so much for giving us your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Dave. Please subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. And if you enjoy the podcast, I'd love it if you could leave a thoughtful review. Stay tuned for a feast of inspirational guests and tales that I very much hope will encourage you to begin your own new journey.